0: So it could have been a three-hour sermon, but we broke it down into two parts. Two hour and a half sermons, just kidding. Psalm 33. I'm going to read the entire psalm. This is God's Word. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with lyre. Sing praises to Him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is upright, and his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap, he lays up the deeps in storehouses. And then this is where we'll pick up this morning in verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it was done. He commanded... And it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he who understands all their works. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory. Nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope for His loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death, to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in Him, because we trust in His holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us, according as we have hoped in you. This is God's holy word. Let's ask Him for help. All men are like grass and the flowers of the field. As the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Lord, we live in tremendously changing times, seemingly breakneck speed. Lord, we look at the world around us and we think just ten years ago how different a world it was. Yet you are unchanging. Man's basic problems are still the same. The hope that is found in the promise of the good news of the death and resurrection and forgiveness of sins that is found in Christ is still the same. And our responsibilities before you are still the same. And so, Lord, bring clarity to our hearts this morning. Pray that Your people would be fed with the holy food of Your Word and grow in respect to their salvation. I pray for those who do not know You, that they would be brought low before You, that they might cast themselves upon the mercy that is found in Christ. I pray for those who come here doubting this morning, struggling in faith. I pray that You would undergird them, inject into their souls an overwhelming confidence in You. I pray for those who are indulging in secret sins, Lord, that You would expose their hearts and that they would come to repentance and find forgiveness in Christ this morning. I pray for those who are playing the religious game, You would help them to see their hypocrisy and they would fly to Christ. I pray for those who are here this morning and see themselves as beyond Your grace and forgiveness. Reach into their hearts with Your open hand, O Lord. May they fly to You and like that prodigal, find forgiveness in You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Perhaps you have read that fictional allegory that Claude Staples Lewis wrote so many years ago called The Chronicles of Narnia. Or, like some of the rest of us, you watched the Disney version. (laughs) But one of my favorite scenes in The Chronicles of Narnia is when those two young girls, Susan and Lucy, are ready to meet Aslan. Aslan. And if you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is the great Christ figure, the lion in the Chronicles of Narnia. And Susan gets word, she, all this long as everybody's talking about Aslan, she just assumes that he's a human. And then she comes to the realization that he's a lion. And she says, and she's, this is a conversation with two talking beavers, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, And she says, uh, I thought he was a man, Susan says. "Is Is he safe? I shall feel rather nervous meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver responds, That you will, dearie. And make no mistake, if there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then Lucy pipes up. Then... Isn't he safe? Safe, Mr. Beaver says. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's not safe, but he's good. The first seven verses of Psalm 33 are called to praise and to rejoice in the Lord, and they highlight something of His goodness. That He is a God who is righteous. He is a God of loyal love. In fact, we notice these imperatives in verses 1-3. through Sing for joy, O you righteous ones. Give thanks to the Lord, verse 2, with lyre. Sing praises to Him. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully. And then, verse 4 begins, the four. Four. This is why... God is faithful. He's faithful in all of His promises. Everything He says is true. Verse 5, He is a God of righteousness. Verse, the second part of verse 5, He is a God of loyal love, full of loving kindness is the earth. And then verse 6, He is the Creator. He, he, by the word of His mouth, the heavens were made, the breath of His mouth, all their hosts. And so, this was a summons to praise God in His goodness. But but as the psalm unfolds, we're going to see a, a second string of imperatives, a string of commands. This time it's not to praise the Lord, but it's to fear the Lord. To acknowledge that indeed Aslan is not safe. To acknowledge and believe that indeed this great God is a God whom we cannot contain. This God is not our servant. He is the As we're going to see, there's a handful of different attributes that really call for a response of fear of the Lord. But let's first of all see this call to fear the Lord. Verse 8, Let all the earth fear Yahweh. All capitals. Capital L, capital L, capital R, capital D. Let all the earth fear the Lord. And and you remember how the psalm began, sing for joy in verse 1, O you righteous ones. It's almost like the psalmist is directing his... His admonition to those who are God's people saying, praise the Lord, it's appropriate, it's becoming, it's fitting that you praise Him. But now the psalmist, almost as if shouting from the rooftop, he extends the call to all the inhabitants of the earth not merely His fellow Jewish brothers and sisters, not only those who are amidst God's covenant people, but every single human being that lives on planet earth, every boy, every girl, every man, every woman, every black person, every white person, every Asian person, every Hispanic person, every Republican, every Democrat, every Libertarian, all must fear Him. And notice it's not only... The earth, we might, if we stop there, think he was talking about the dirt. But it's evident he's talking about those image bearers. The second part of verse 8, Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Now sometimes when we read passages like this, Fear the Lord, stand in awe we can sometimes um, make up an artificial division in our thing. "Well, Well, that's, that's the God of the Old Testament. We fear Him. But you know, Jesus, He's like this soft, cuddly individual we can snuggle up to. And so we don't have to fear God anymore. Um, can I suggest to you that's wrong thinking? Uh, now both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, I've been reading through the book of Acts, actually, with with uh, with our children, and over and over, it says they feared God. The early church, people would come to a saving knowledge of Christ, get baptized, join the church, and they would fear God. In other words, the, the fear of God is a theme that runs from Genesis to Revelation. It is the right and appropriate response to who God is. In fact, you need to read the end of the story. Indeed, Jesus is a person of compassion and gentleness and lowliness and that even children come up to Him and and, and are blessed by Him. But yet, at the end of the story, Revelation 19, He's coming on a white horse to be feared. Right? And so the fear of the Lord is... It's an appropriate response to God. So what is the fear of the Lord? I teach our young people in the Catechism, what is the fear of the Lord? To fear the Lord is to stand in awe. A reverential awe of the great God who is. To love what's right and to hate what's wrong. Mm-hmm. To fear the Lord. And fear, we often think of fear. Fear is in many ways, it's, it's a response to the knowledge of something. And if somebody walked through those double doors in the back, dressed in a Spider-Man costume, yield, uh, wielding a machete, you would have rightful reason to be afraid. <laughs> You'd say, what kind of nut job just walked in? Okay? You would, you would have the right response, a rational fear of a very odd situation. Somebody wheel, carrying a, a, a deadly weapon who looks a little bit deranged. Okay? Fear of the Lord is a response to the knowledge of God. And, and so the rest of our morning here, we're going we're gonna to look at some of the key ingredients to rightly respond in fearing the Lord. Okay? Four key ingredients. First of all, the sovereignty of God. We're going to see this in verses 9-11. through 11, The sovereignty of God. Now, that's a big word, but... If you're paying attention, you know there's a sign out front that says Sovereign Grace Chapel. Sovereign reign. We have the word reign in the second part of the word. R-E-I-G-N, not R-A-I-N. Reign, we associate with rulership, with kingship. Sovereign means to reign. Uh, uh, it means overall. So sovereign is one who reigns overall. One who is king. One who is in authority over all things. And so this is what we see in verses nine through twelve. It says, "For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Now when you're looking at this and reading it, you realize that uh, he's just talked about creation, in verses 6 and 7. So probably, verse 9 is an allusion back to God in creation. And that's what we see, right? Genesis 1, one through 1-3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering. And then God said, and what? Let there be light, and there was light. And that was day one. And then it goes on day two. And God said, and then it happened, and, and it was so. And so this is probably a reference to this. It, it's, it's the reality that God, the Creator God, He exercises complete and exhaustive and meticulous authority over all creation so that whatever He says happens. He is the God who is in control of all things, all the activities of human beings, all the activities of His entire creation, both the image bearers and those who aren't His image bearers, the the hurricanes, the earthquakes. When God says quake, the earth quakes. All is according to His sovereign decree. And sometimes in our culture, because of the scientific method and our abilities to accumulate knowledge and, and discern certain what what I might call secondary causes of things that happen in this world. Uh, like we can, you know, the weatherman gets on and talks about high and low pressure systems. you like my weatherman imitation there. And, and you know, and, and, and he's talking about a tropical storm coming and, 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 and can explain these things and some of their, what we might call natural secondary causes. Sometimes because we can explain some of these secondary causes that we forget the reality that God is the primary and ultimate cause of all things. God is God. He is the creator of all things. He sustains His creation. He providentially governs all of His creation. In fact, there's even evidences of this when we open up the Gospel accounts and we see... God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's demonstrating His humanity in a very tangible way on a boat as He's taking a cat nap. What could be more human than taking a midday nap, right? But then you remember what happens on the Sea of Galilee in Mark chapter 4. All of a sudden the squall... Comes upon the Sea of Galilee, and these experienced, seasoned fishermen are all of a sudden wetting their tunics. And they're shaking Jesus. Wake up, Jesus! You're gonna let us die here? And you can just imagine Jesus waking up, rubbing the crust from his eyes. And he rebukes the winds and the waves and immediately they obey. And do you remember the response of the disciples? Mark records they were more afraid. (laughs) Initially they were afraid of the winds and the waves. But by the end of the story, they're afraid of Jesus. And that was the right response. Because they realized they were standing before somebody who had power over the creation. This is what the psalmist is saying. Let all the inhabitants of the earth fear the Lord. Why? He speaks and it happens. Amen. He is the one who is king and exercises all authority over His creation. Verse 10. Because... Obviously, this would cause one to scratch their head. and Verse 10 says, The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. Verse 10 says that he nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. The nations, the peoples, these are the, the Gentile nations, the, the superpowers that surrounded Israel. You know, they were, they were constantly coming up against these superpowers. We see one of these superpowers early in the pages of Scripture. We see Egypt, right? Here's a superpower. They had the cutting edge of military technology, the tanks of the day, the chariots they were able to cut down their foes with great ease and here the psalmist says he nullifies the counsel of the nations, he frustrates the plans of the people, you see Pharaoh learned this the hard way When Moses came to him and said, Yahweh, God of the Hebrews, says, Let my people go. You remember what Pharaoh's response is? Who is this Yahweh that I should obey him? Well, he was about to find out. And God, in his finger, sends. Plagues upon Egypt, mocking the deities of the Egyptians, and bringing this great superpower to its knees. We see this as well later on, as the Israelites are moving towards the Promised Land and the Book of Numbers and Balak. Or I'm sorry. Uh, Balak summons his prophet Balaam to prophesy against the Israelites to hinder them from going into the land. And Balak learns the hard way. Doesn't matter how much money you give to the false prophet, to the prophet for hire, the word of Yahweh will be fulfilled. And all those. Hittites and Perizzites and Amorites and Midianites will be mowed down as God fulfills His promise to bring His people into the land that He promised to give them. This is how we started this series in the Psalms, right? In Psalm 2. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against His anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger. And then Psalm 2 closes by saying, now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Rise up. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship Yahweh with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest He become angry with you and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. And blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. The Lord frustrates the plans of the people. Now, so obviously, we're... We're understanding God as a God of tremendous power and exercise of His sovereignty and governance of this world. And the immediate response is going to be, well, what about people's choices? What about powerful individuals who make decisions? What about the movers and shakers of this world? And God says, Nah, I do what I want with them. They're mere puppets in my hand. It's not to say that they don't make real decisions. Remember a couple of weeks ago in Sunday school, we read through Isaiah chapter 10 and the Assyrians and their great military might. God says, they're the rod of my anger. I They're a tool in my hand. Oh, they don't, they don't intend on it. They're not saying, we're here to do your will, O God, and we're going to be an instrument of judgment upon the nations. No. That's not their intention, but God in His sovereignty exercises in such a way that the responsible choices of men and women and leaders are merely doing His bidding. Nebuchadnezzar learned this the hard way. Remember, Chad, that's what his friends call him for short, Nebuchadnezzar, He's looking at the great empire of Babylon. I'm sweet. Look at this. Look at this great empire which I have built. I'm unstoppable. Look at my power. Remember he built that ninety-foot-high statue to Mual? trying to force everybody to bow down to it. But then God speaks to him. He says, I'm going to make you like an animal. I'm going to make your hair grow like long like birds' feathers and your, your nails are going to be like birds' claws. You're going to be munching on the grass of the front lawn of the Babylonian palace. For seven years until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign. And that's exactly what he did. Nebuchadnezzar was a wild man, loony, for seven years, until finally, at the end of those seven years, he confesses. Listen to his confession and Daniel 4.34 but at the end of that period I Nebuchadnezzar raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion his kingdom endures from generation all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar finally realized that his arms were too short to box with God. Better to humble yourself and fear the Lord before God does it for you. But notice in verse 11, the counsel of Yahweh stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. So, while the the plans and the plotting and the counsel of the peoples, the nations, the rulers, the kings, it gets frustrated. It does not come to fruition as they desire. God's plans always go exactly as He intends. God has no contingencies. There is no plan B. There is only plan A. It always happens according to His sovereign will. Ephesians 1.11 says this. It speaks of the God who works all things after the counsel of of His will. R.C. Sproul was famous for saying that there is no maverick molecule in the universe. He also said, the sovereignty of God is God's favorite attribute. And it would be yours too if you were sovereign. But yet, this is an attribute that, as J.C. Ryle, is very offensive to the human nature. Why? We like to think we're the ones calling the shots. We like to think that we are the captain of our ship, the master of our fate. We are autonomous. My will be done on earth. And we're Americans. (laughs) We will not have a king to rule over us. Charles Spurgeon, the great Victorian Baptist preacher, speaking of the sovereignty of God, he says, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings, no truth of which they have made such a football." as the great, stupendous, yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on His throne. They will allow Him to be in the workshop to fashion the worlds and make stars. They will allow Him to be in the almery to dispense His alms and bestow His bounties, blessings from the Lord. They will allow Him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof or light the lamps of heaven to rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends His throne, His creatures gnash their teeth and we proclaim an enthroned God and His right to do as He wills with His own, to dispose of His creatures as He thinks well, without consulting them in the matter, then it is that we are hissed and execrated, and then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us, for God on His throne is not the God that they love. And I understand, friends, there may be some sitting here this morning and saying, Matt, are are you saying God's in absolute control over all things and lots of questions may pop in your head, the reality of evil and suffering in this world? But the message of the Bible is that all evil and suffering bows before God's sovereign throne and purposes. He works it for His good purposes. You may say, well, what about the responsibility of man? God's got it all worked out. He doesn't need your consultation, your approval. He's God. And He does as He wills, as He pleases. And no one, as Nebuchadnezzar came to learn that hard lesson, no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Oh, they can say it. It's not actually the reality. Verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people who He has chosen for His inheritance. This is another one of these... Blessed statements that we find in the Psalms, right? That's how it started out in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man uh, who does not take counsel in the, the, the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And that, Then Psalm 2 ends with blessed are those who take refuge in him. Psalm 32, blessed is the man whose transgressions are not imputed against him. And here we have another blessed, blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh. Blessed Asherah, happy, contented, joyful. In other words, you don't want to be lined up on the other side of the ball of this God. He's the boss. You want to be on His team. He's the one who His plans are executed Perfectly from generation to generation. It all goes according to his plan. You ought to be in his good graces. And notice he says the second phrase the people whom he has chosen for his inheritance. It's all of grace. Israel was a privileged people. Deuteronomy 7 7 and 8 says, the Lord did not set His love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you are the fewest of all peoples. And God says, I I didn't choose you because I was like, look at this great nation. I'm going to make them my people. It's going to be great. No, you're just a handful of people. Very unimpressive. But then He says, but... Why did He choose them? Why did He set His love upon them? But because the Lord loved you. (laughs) I love that. It's a non-answer, right? God loved you because He loved you. In other words, God chose to love them. It was His sovereign prerogative to set His love upon them. It wasn't that they were more righteous. It wasn't that they were more vast than any of the other nations. He set His love and grace and favor upon them because He set His love upon them. And that is the testimony of every believer in the Lord Jesus, right? Ephesians 1.4 Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us to adoption as sons according to what? According to the kind intention of His will. He wanted to do it. There wasn't anything in us. Not because we're great. Not because we're sweet. This is God's Sovereign prerogative. One of the Protestant reformers, he was French, he it in Geneva. I'll let you guess who I'm talking about. <laughs> for when God condescends to undertake the care of our salvation, to cherish us under His wings, to provide for our necessities, to aid us in all our dangers, all of this depends on our adoption by Him. A.W. Pink calls the sovereignty of God the Godness of God. He's God. He does what He wants. And this, my friends, should provoke a healthy response of fear in our hearts. I'm not in control of this ship. I bow before Almighty God. I submit to Him. I subject myself to Him. He is God and I am not. In fact, I would say, in a very real sense, that is biblical conversion. Biblical conversion comes with the realization that you are not the king anymore. And you take the crown off of your head, and you place it upon His head, and you say, Almighty God in Jesus Christ, you call the shots now. You're the king. You're the sovereign. You're the ruler. I bow to you, and I know that I'm only accepted in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's done on the cross. Now, am I saying that anybody who doesn't understand and believe in the sovereignty of God exactly in the same way that I've just taught it here this morning is not a Christian. That's not what I'm saying. But there is at its essence, at its root, that conversion to Christ is embracing the kingship of Christ. So, do you believe in a frustrated deity Do you believe that God is in heaven looking down at this great republic that we reside in, wringing His hands, saying, man, what am I going to do? We need to call a session of Congress here. No. No, He's using foolish, stupid decisions of lawmakers and politicians and all that. It's all going according to plan. Something good in the end. Oh yeah, it's a mess right now. But we, we we've read the end of the book and Jesus coming back and God will win in the end. I don't know if this is right around the corner, if we got some decades or centuries I don't know. Not the prophet not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But I know he's working it all according to plan. second ingredient to fearing the Lord. Not only believing the sovereignty of God. Second, believing the omniscience of God. I'm using a lot of big words this morning, but you guys are big people. (laughs) Omni, all science, knowledge. God has all knowledge. Look at verse 13 to 15. The Lord, again Yahweh, looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From from His dwelling place, He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all. He who understands all their works. Again, here, it's almost like the psalmist is painting a portrait of God looking down from heaven, and He sees all the inhabitants of men. And there's not one who exists out of His eyesight. He sees them all. He is the creator of them all. He fashions the hearts, not just of some men, but all of them. He sees not just some men, but all men. This is comprehensive and exhaustive knowledge of God. His eyes pierce through the hearts of men. He sees the motives of all that humanity does. He sees what they are doing even if nobody else on planet Earth sees what they are doing. Amen. He knows all things past, present, future. He has infinite recall. He knows all things possible and all things actual. He knows what would happen if A happened, B would have happened. He knows it all. He knows all the infinite possible contingencies And this should provoke fear. I mean, if you're a parent or an aunt or an uncle, and you see a little child doing something they're not supposed to be doing, they think nobody's looking, then all of a sudden when they realize somebody's watching them, fear, right? Fear. Their hearts are struck with fear. Well, God sees everything. Everything. If we really believe that the eyes of omniscience exhaustively see everything, then our hearts would not fear man, but fear the Lord. I mean, often we're concerned about what others think of us. That's why we often, you know, comb our hairs and we, you know, button our shirts. We try to impress others with our appearance and things like that. And, you know, I'm not advocating you to come looking sloppy this morning, but you get what I'm saying, is that so much of our lives are driven by fearing man, pleasing others, being accepted before man. Not believing that God sees everything. And He's the one whom we are accountable to. God sees what the older writers called religious hypocrites people who just play the religious game. Outwardly, they can talk a good Christian game, but they have secret lives of rebellion against God and have never yielded their hearts to the kingship of Christ. If that's you here this morning, I'm here to tell you God knows. You may have duped yourself, you may have conned yourself into thinking that you can trick even God But I have liberating news for you God already knows. And you know what? He's willing to forgive you. But you need to turn away from that. Come clean with Him. And repent. Repent. He knows of religious hypocrites who would seek to kiss Him like Judas kissed Jesus. Jesus knew, didn't He? Also for Christians, this should be a call to live a life before the eye of God, or as uh, that uh, table talk column, Coram Deo, right? Before the face of God. Because that's how it is. We're living our lives before the face of God. He sees... Everything we do. And if we really believe that, would we not have a greater fear of the Lord, a greater concern to to stand in awe of Him, a greater concern to do what's honoring to Him? This also, for the believer, should bring a measure of comfort. Because God knows everything there is to know about us all of our sin, all the dirtiness, and He still loves us. You know, often the, the shocking reality of newlyweds is the, you know, the underwear factor. You know, when, when you, know, you, you walk around in underwear with people you're closest to, well, when, when you first get married, it's like, you know, all your warts are there and everybody can see it. Your spouse can see all the, the sin and there's this level of shock, right? Ooh, I didn't, this is not who I married. It actually is who you married, right? The person you were engaged to was just a front. But you see, God, God sees us in our underwear. He sees all the, the dirtiness. And if you're in Christ, He sees it all and He loves you. You're forgiven in Him. He's patient with you. He's going to guide you to help clean things up here and there. But he, He's so patient. He doesn't, he doesn't bombard you, showing you all your blemishes all at the same time. He'll, he's patient. So, first reason, first ingredient in the fear of God is, is believing in a sovereign God. Secondly, believing in an omniscient God. But, but, but thirdly, not believing the vain hope of man. Notice in verses 16 through 19 the king is not saved by a mighty army, a warrior is not delivered by great strength, a horse is a false hope for victory nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope for His loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Notice, this is the vain hope of man. The King is not saved by a mighty, by a mighty army. Great strength. Great strength the horse there's a tendency for the human heart to trust in military might now now keep in mind here israel was like a walkway between great empires right you know, you have the Egyptians in the south, you have the Syrians in the north, and later the Babylonians, and and, and here you have little Israel in between. And, and often these armies, as they're passing through to to fight one another, they, you know, they see Israel along the way and just let me kick them. I, I mean, and and you live, and this is actually the most most of. The history of civilization live with the reality of of the threats of invading armies just coming in and, you know, taking your wives and children and and stealing and plundering and all that. We, We haven't had to live through that kind of tremendous threat of fear. And so there would be a great temptation to hope in your military prowess, your armies. But you see, what God is saying here, this is a vain hope. This is a vain hope. Instead, verse 18, Behold, the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His loving kindness, His loyal love, those who are trusting in His promises. He is the one who will be faithful. Your security... Your safety, your comfort is found ultimately in God in His promises. And that, that's the next point, so I don't want to get ahead of myself. But you see what this does is it helps us to see that we ought not to fear man, but to fear the Lord. The vain hope of man is to put all of his confidence in man's might. And that's a foolish endeavor. It's a foolish endeavor. It was in ancient Israel. This is why David was judged, because he took a census of the Israelites. You remember that? I mean, for our eyes, it well like, whoa, that's a pretty harsh punishment. He's just trying to count the people, right? You know? But what was that? It was pride, right? He wanted to see, look how sweet we are. Look how many soldiers we have. And God said, mm, no... Not going to do that. That's not where your confidence is supposed to be. We see in the days of Hezekiah when he's surrounded by an Assyrian army, it seems like a hopelessly dire situation. There's like 200,000 Assyrian foot soldiers right outside the walls of Jerusalem, and they're outside taunting Hezekiah and the God of Israel. And then they wake up the next morning and the entire army is dead. God sent not an army of angels; He sent one angel to do the job. One angel did the job, and it's the same in the new covenant. God is God. He is, He is the one who's sovereign. He is the one who's in control. We ought not to put our, our hope in human instrumentality and human strength. Again, we, I mentioned this last week, I'll mention it again. The church ought not to put its confidence in its ability, in its numbers. God turned the world upside down in the book of Acts with 120 people at a prayer meeting. He can do whatever he wants. He turned the world upside down with His, his apostles, uh, you know, not exactly the, you know, the, the Ivy League material of the day. Also, don't put your confidence and hope in God to stand before this great God. Don't think that God is going to look upon your life, upon your baptism, upon your church attendance, upon the good things you've done and wink at all your sins. No, that's foolish. You need somebody to pay for your sins. You need Jesus to take the punishment you deserve to be reconciled to this great God. So, fear the Lord, not man. Isn't this what Jesus said? Do not fear Him who can destroy the body, but fear Him who can destroy both body and soul in hell forever. There's a temptation right now as the players, the leaders in this country have a taste of the power that they can grab of the American people and there's a temptation towards fear what's going to happen to the church what's going to happen to God's people there's an equality bill being discussed that would basically make it illegal for any Christian school to believe in a Christian sex ethic you don't need to fear fear not him who can destroy the body Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell forever. Amen. Fear the Lord. If he has planned for you prison ministry <laughs> prison ministry it'll be. If he has planned for you a martyr's death, catapulted in the glory. I, I'm not making light of these things, but I, I'm saying you don't have to fear. Don't put your hope in Political strength. God didn't promise the perpetuity of this great republic. He did say, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. So, first ingredient sovereignty of God. Believe the sovereignty of God. Second, believe the omniscience of God. Third, don't believe in the vain hope of man. Fourth, Believe in the true hope that's in God. This is how the psalm closes. Verse 20, 22. He says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help. And I love this. Our shield. Again, think of the context of constant military threats. He's our shield. He's our protection. He's our safety. For our heart rejoices in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let Your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in You. You see, it's, it's proper to fear the Lord, to be in reverential awe of Him and to submit yourself to Him because His promises are true. You can hope in Him. The psalm ends with great confidence in the Lord. He's our help. He's our shield. He was the defender and the protector of Israel. They, they went astray when they began to make alliances with other pagan nations, when they just chose to trust in the Lord. He, he protected them. It's the same for the church of Jesus Christ today. Maybe not in the midst of the military battles, but the Apostle Paul says our warfare is not against flesh and blood. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual to the tearing down of mighty fortresses. Taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ, Second Corinthians 10. Verse 21, For our heart rejoices in Him. What a wonderful way to conclude. And it's almost that's how the psalm began, remember? Verse 1 Sing for joy in the Lord. And again, my friend, in the midst of a, a turbulent time, tremendous change in a world, an upheaval. The temptations towards fearing a sinful fear related to the circumstances is all around us a temptation towards grumbling and complaining. And I want to tell you, on the authority of God's Word, you can have joy in the Lord even in the midst of it. If you're putting your hope in Him and in His promises, if you're nourishing yourself upon the milk of His promises then you will be sustained in the midst of it. You'll have a nice belch with satisfaction in your belly having milked upon the promises of God. Because that's the loyal love, the loving kindness, that's His loyal love. and We talked about it last week, His chesed, His, his love that has a backbone of faithful promise steeled in it. And then, the psalm closes with a prayer, verse 22, Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. Hope is a powerful thing, but it's only as good as its object. If you put your hope in things that God hasn't promised then you'll almost certainly be disappointed. But if you put your hope in things that God has promised, then you'll be able to have joy, and you'll have fear in the proper place, a proper reverential awe of God. And this, by the way, is what distinguishes what the older writers called family fear from servile fear, or... Uh, The fear, the proper fear of the child of God is the kind of fear a child has for its father. A child who has respect for his father or her father, knowing you don't want to cross dad, but I know dad loves me. And I'm not running from dad trying to hide because I have a relationship with dad that he loves me. But I still respect him. In the words of Mrs. Beaver, or was it Mr. Beaver, he's not safe, but he's good. Let me close with an illustration of this kind of fear of the Lord. You may have heard of Jonathan Edwards. He's most famous for his sermon that uh, usually was read in 11th grade English literature, American literature class, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He was a colonial pastor-theologian. And he had been recently appointed to presidency of Princeton Theological Seminary. And uh, smallpox was going around during that day. And uh, he decided to get a smallpox... Inoculation, but as Ryan instructed me on Friday, it was probably cowpox. It's not an advocate, I'm not advocating or non advocating for vaccinations, but he did die from it. (laughs) Um, Where was I? His wife, not long after that, Sarah Edwards. This is a woman who sat under Edward's God-centered teachings her whole life. Her husband had tragically just died and, and two weeks after his tragic death, her clear view of God shines forth as she writes this letter to her daughter, who tragically also would wind up dying a couple weeks after this. She writes, My very dear child... What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore His goodness that we had Him for so long. But my God lives And your Father has left us. And we are all given to God. And there I am and love to be. Your affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. May God help us to live in the fear of the Lord like that dear saint. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty. We thank you and praise you. For all that You are, the sovereign God who speaks and it happens, the One who frustrates the counsel of the nations, the plans of the peoples, but whose counsel, whose purposes and plans go from generation to generation. You are the omniscient One, the One who sees all the inhabitants of the earth. Lord, keep us from foolishly putting our hope in man, may we put our hope in You and Your promises and walk in the fear of You.